Welcome to the Unorthodoxy podcast and to the third episode in a series that I'm doing on the Enneagram. My intention in this and in other episodes in this series is to explore the meaning, relevance and dynamism of the Enneagram for life, the universe and everything. Right at the end of the series, I'm going to bring it back to the critique of ideology, how the Enneagram can help us to look at where larger ideologies and not just personal ideologies fail, and also then how to address those failings. But before we get to the larger social and ideological implications of the Enneagram, I figured it would be helpful to first look at the more personal dimension, how the Enneagram relates to personality and personal psychology, and then, very importantly, to spiritual formation. The spiritual formation angle on the Enneagram makes a lot of sense to me, since we might too easily get stuck into just knowing a bunch of interesting stuff, without it necessarily making much of a difference um, to how we live and, and move and have our being. What it means to examine the Enneagram's contribution to spiritual formation, it turns out, is that we need to understand that a major function of the Enneagram is to both confirm and strip away our illusions. The Enneagram confirms our illusions in the sense that it tells us pretty much everything that we take to be normal behavior is in fact a construct or pattern determined by loss, by a sense of what we lack, and, and then what we do to, to accommodate or defend ourselves against this loss or lack. And the Enneagram also strips away our illusions by pointing to the deeper reality against which our illusions are constructed. In the process, it strives to point us back to wholeness and abundance, rather than to have us stay stuck in all kinds of ruts. Our illusions, by the way, aren't necessarily entirely negative, which may surprise you. When you watch a movie, for instance, or read a novel, you are well aware that the fiction of the story is precisely the vehicle by which the truth is transmitted. The same goes for the fiction of personality and the fiction of the Enneagram itself, or even the fiction of theology. Constructs may be illusions, but they are nevertheless often true. Fictions can, of course, trap us like a delusional person stuck in the belief that their delusion is reality. But our fictions can also free us by pointing beyond themselves. I spoke in the previous episode about how ego formation is profoundly linked to the fact that we fall from or lose contact with reality. This loss of contact with reality is symbolized by the numbers 9, 6 and 3, and the inner triangle of the Enneagram. Point nine symbolizes our loss of contact with truth, with with reality or God. Point six symbolizes our loss of a sense of safety, a loss of a sense that the world has our best interests at heart. And point three symbolizes our loss of a sense of personal value, which manifests in the birth of persona and personality, which is the pattern that we develop as a defense against this loss. I think this sense of loss is echoed fairly well in the work of Jacques Lacan, who was a French psychoanalyst. In particular, the loss reflects Lacan's notion of castration, which thankfully, like a lot of other ideas by Lacan, should not be taken literally. Lacan tells us a story about how our primary experience of the worth of the self is through the primary caregiver. In Lacan's work, this is the mother. The trouble is, the mother doesn't seem to think that her baby is really the be-all and end-all of existence. We know this 
because occasionally the mother leaves the baby's side to attend to other things. And in doing so, the mother will tend to use all kinds of excuses. She will say, for instance, that she needs to go to work, or that daddy is calling her, or that she needs to get ready for bed, or various other things. As the child listens to these excuses, Lacan suggests the child starts to figure out a few things. In particular, the child generates the sense that the mother is lacking something and that there is something out there that seems to address this lack. The sense that the child has is duplicated in the fact that the world itself seems to be lacking in something and that the mother needs to try and attend to this lack in her own way. If daddy needs mommy, for instance, well, then daddy must be missing something too. And so the child starts to figure out that reality itself is full of holes. There is a crack in everything, which is, I guess, how Leonard Cohen gets in. Actually, Lacan postulates that the child must assume on some deep existential level that there really is something that can fill all the holes in reality. And Lacan calls this the phallus. By following Freud, Lacan, if you don't already know this, ends up with metaphors that are highly sexual, but the phallus is not literal here. It's, it's a symbol that suggests a kind of potency, and in particular, this potency tries to fill the holes in reality, but also the holes in ourselves. This may be a, a rather rough sketch of Lacan's ideas on this matter, and more attentive listeners will probably think that my explanation is too rough. It's probably true that it's too rough and I'm okay with it. The specifics must give way, I feel, to two very simple but foundational ideas. The first is that we all feel the sense of loss at the core of ourselves. And the second is that given our unique sensitivities, we all try to imitate or even become the thing, the phallus that might fill the hole in the big other. This idea of, of finding a way to fill the gaps in reality fits really well with the Enneagram. The Enneagram echoes the psychoanalytic sense that we feel this lack in the big other and in ourselves, this hole or this gap that needs to be compensated for. But it goes further to suggest that because of our own unique sensitivities, because of the way that we've been built, we tend to interpret this lack, this hole to be filled, this thing to be avoided, in very specific ways, ways that echo the structures of our own sensitivities. In Enneagramma, what I'm calling it, this is referred to as the avoidance of each type. This avoidance is then addressed in different ways by each Enneotype. And the different ways that each Enneotype tries to address the lacks and gaps in life, the universe and everything, are called temptations. So that's what I want to cover briefly here in this episode, our avoidances and our temptations. I think this is one of the most helpful ways to understand what the Enneagram is actually doing. It's highlighting how each of us, depending on our own unique sensitivities and capacities, will gravitate towards specific actions and perceptions in response to our own sense of a lack of being. Of course, all of us may relate to the following avoidances and temptations in some way. But the basic theory of the Enneagram is that there is one particular way that is likely to come up as much stronger for you than, than the others. 
And that's what I'm trying to get at. I know that what follows risks being too static, um, but the staticness of it should provide a gateway for understanding the more dynamic functions of the Enneagram later. So let's start with type 1s on the Enneagram. 1s on the Enneagram feel that the void or hole in reality is articulated best as a kind of imperfection. It's no surprise then that John Kelvin was a one on the Enneagram who articulated his theology around the notion of total depravity. He was following another one on the Enneagram named St. Augustine, and this total depravity must, in the one-ish view of things, be avoided at all costs. So you get that sense of the temptation is to avoid this imperfection, but the avoidance is the imperfection itself. And this means that the one's chief temptation is that of perfectionism or moralism. Ones, more than anyone else on the Enneagram, need to feel that they are right, that they're doing the right thing, that they're on the right side, and that they're not putting a foot wrong. The the tyranny of one-ishness is mostly understood in terms of the expectations they put on themselves, but this can be equally demanding on those that ones know and love, or even people that they don't know at all. As with the other numbers that I'll talk about in a minute, the avoidance and the temptation of, of ones is a lie. It's not that imperfections don't exist, but that they do not exist in the kind of absolute terms that ones will tend to use. Twos on the Enneagram want to avoid confronting their own neediness. And the way that twos cope with this hole in the big other is to become overly concerned with the needs of others, or somehow even the needs of the big other. It's as if twos perceive quite strongly that somehow even God needs their help. Twos want to be helpful, encouraging, and above all things, needed. This easily, unfortunately, turns into a recipe for doormatishness and resentment since others don't do the same. Twos, like ones, feel that they have the moral high ground, but twos are less secure about this moral high ground than ones are. They enjoy serving people, of course, but they also, in a way, don't. When immature, twos serve in the hope that their servanthoodishness will be returned, that others are going to serve them as they serve others. That's always the dilemma of the two's superego. It gives and it takes away. It tells the two to choose the way of self-sacrifice, but it forgets to remind the two of the way of self-preservation and of limited resources. Like twos, threes on the Enneagram tend to look to others for a confirmation of their own sense of self-worth. They do this because they're trying to avoid a sense of valuelessness or even the tyranny of failure. To counteract non-success and failure, threes place huge expectations on themselves to be successful above all things, always performing well. Threes are highly committed, often overcommitted to to a societal superego injunction to gain value from doing, but not from being. But since success in itself is not a moral category, Three sometimes struggle to know how to connect success with truth or with honesty. America is a very three country. Being, just being there, being present, is not generally prioritized in American culture, especially in the economic and political spheres of life, but also, obviously, in other areas. 
Like all the other Enya types, but probably in a more emphatic way, threes need to learn that their value is going to be found in a connection with reality, not with a flight from reality into pseudo-activity. Now on to fours. Fours are particularly adept at experiencing the whole in the big other as if it is a whole in their own personality structure. And so fours avoid ordinariness. They feel, generally speaking, that ordinariness is the main problem with themselves and therefore the problem with the world. What ones feel in a lack of perfection and what twos feel in a lack of self-reliance and what threes feel in a lack of personal value Fours feel in terms of a lack of authenticity. Fours have a particularly oppressive superego that is always pointing out their flaws, always telling them that their authenticity is insufficient and that they will always somehow be outsiders, that they need something that only other people have. Fours often try to address this sense of alienation by giving their uniqueness to the world in the form of art and music and poetry, Although some fours struggle to be creative in the ways that they feel that they are expected to be, both creative and uncreative fours have to deal with the awful truth that their creative expressions will not save them or the world outside themselves. And that brings us to fives. Nietzsche has this famous line um, about staring into the abyss and the horror of, of having the abyss stare back. Well, this is the avoidance that fives are more familiar with than any other type. While the other Enya types might experience the whole in the big other in terms of other things, imperfection, neediness, failure, etc., fives seem to experience the whole itself. Their central avoidance is the rather painful possibility of absolute non-being or absolute emptiness. So fives become bottomless cups in an infinite sea of knowledge and competence. They want to take in everything to conceal their inner emptiness from themselves, and so they observe, and then they keep observing, and then they keep observing. Ones, who are often confused with fives, are generally very heady people, but they tend to stick with the conclusions they have already reached, and are more likely than fives to translate their conclusions into action. Fives don't believe that conclusions are possible. All conclusions are provisional, and this is why partly at least, why fives struggle to translate knowledge into action. Then, sixes. The six feels the whole in reality in terms of a lack of stability in themselves and in the world. And so they try to compensate for this either by seeking security in the world or by imitating a sense of security in themselves. This gives rise to two kinds of sixes, phobic sixes and counterphobic sixes. That is, there are sixes, phobic sixes, who are overly dedicated to the will of the big other, and then there are sixes, counterphobic sixes, who think that the big other should be kicked in the teeth. Often, these two poles are both evident in sixes at the same time, but a six on the Enneagram will tend to lean closer to one than to the other as they move through the world. Sixes exhibit a profound sense of loyalty, although it is a loyalty that's often a little bit ambivalent. They both trust and distrust. They see authority as a point of stability and as a point of instability. At their most immature, sixes are more likely than any other Enneatype to succumb to paranoia. 
Then sevens on the Enneagram. Sevens are probably more than any other type bound to the super ego injunction to enjoy themselves and life. We all know this injunction, of course, because this is the ideological core of a great deal of the modern West, but sevens are the most likely of the Enneatypes to experience the joy in this injunction to enjoy. They flee into the world as if to escape pain. So pain, usually emotional pain, is the hole in the big other. It's the thing that sevens want to avoid. Sevens are more likely than any other type to be overly idealistic and overly ready to accept change rather than figure out a solution to the problem that they're currently experiencing. For them, the grass really is greener on the other side. And that brings us to eights. While fives avoid emptiness, sixes avoid deviance, and sevens avoid pain, eights want to avoid weakness. Weakness is the hole in the big other for eights, and it needs to be counted. Eights seek to control, to dominate, to win, to never back down, to refuse to be vulnerable. Eights are often referred to as the leaders because they have this natural tendency to take charge, even when it's not their place to take charge, and even when they don't have the capacity to or the ability to take charge. Eights are probably the most likely of all the types to shoot first and ask questions later. Eights are tempted by justice, which seems like an odd temptation. They're more likely than any of the other types to do whatever it takes to make great things happen, even if they're not quite clear on what is wrong or on what needs to be fixed. Of course, like all types, the mature version of an eight is a remarkable figure, and we're going to talk about the mature types uh, as we go along in this series. And the last, but certainly not least, of the Enneotypes is the Nine. Nines see the whole in the big other in terms of conflict. The big other is overly bound up in antagonisms. So eights want to avoid conflict. So they try to keep the peace, not to ruffle anyone's feathers. Their temptation is to self-deprecation. I know twos are pretty good at self-deprecation too, but nines make an art of it. Twos will voice their self-deprecation in a secret hope that you will reach out and tell them that you love them. But nines in their immature state won't necessarily even let you know, because sometimes they don't even know themselves. The trouble with this approach is that sometimes ruffling people's feathers is the right thing to do. Sometimes conflict is not only necessary, but good. Nines, more than any other type, lose touch with the anger that helps all of us to keep our boundaries intact. So there you have the chief avoidances and temptations of each type. One thing that is quite interesting to me is just how ethical to each temptation seems. The perfection that ones seek can't be that bad, right? And and the fact that twos want to help out, isn't that a good thing? And the justice that eights want, who wouldn't want justice? But that, it, it turns out, is exactly the trouble. The trouble with it is that what seems like the ethical thing to do is often not the truly ethical thing to do. It's not that perfection or servanthood or success are necessarily bad, but they may be ways of replacing what is truly good with a lesser good. It's not that personality itself is bad, but that often it can just be a cover-up for what's really going on and what's really needed. 
And that, I think, is one of the most powerful lessons of the Enneagram. Sometimes we can get so caught up in what we think is expected of us, whether by others or by ourselves, that we actually end up failing to come into contact with reality. So that is it for the avoidances and temptations of each Enneagram type. Before we dive more into how the dynamics of the Enneagram work, I think it'll be a good idea to briefly dive into the deeper issue of how we speak, how we communicate, and and just how our way of communicating may alert us to the deeper dimensions of ourselves. So there you go. That was the third episode in the season on the Enneagram on this Unorthodoxy podcast. My name is Duncan Rayburn. You are very welcome to support the Unorthodoxy podcast at Patreon, and you can contact me at unorthodoxy at zoho.com. Cheers for now.